Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. There, welcome to today's New Books in Education, one of the podcast channels in New Books Network. This is your host Peng Fei Zhao speaking to you from Gainesville, Florida. In today's episode, our focus is young people of various racial and ethnic backgrounds in the United States. Have you ever wondered? How do children and adolescents transition to adulthood in today's America? How have American societies entrenching economic inequality and increasing financial precarity shaped their coming-of-age experience? What does it mean to grow up in a diverse society? These are important questions to ask in order to understand young people's life in the United States. Educators, parents, and policymakers are concerned about these questions for various reasons. One thing I would like to highlight, though, is how much the ongoing and heatedly debated topics in our public sphere are related to young people's life, such as college debt relief, gay marriage, reproductive rights, and so on. Understanding young people's life helps approach these topics in a more informed way. Today, I will be talking with an expert in this area. Phoebe Ho is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. Phoebe is the lead author of Diversity and the Transition to Adulthood in America a book that offers a panoramic view of young people's life in today's increasingly diverse United States. She's the best person to answer the questions I raised in the beginning of this episode. Now, let's turn to Phoebe and her co-authored book, Diversity and the Transition to Adulthood in America. Hello, Phoebe. Welcome to New Books in Education. Hi, thanks for having me on. Sure, yeah. Congratulations on publishing your wonderful book. Thanks. And I'll just say on behalf of my co-authors, Hyunjun Park and Grace Cow, we're really excited about the opportunity to talk about this new book. Wonderful, wonderful. So maybe we can get started by you uh, saying a little bit about yourself, what kind of work you do. Yeah, so I'm a sociologist, and a lot of my work is really around understanding contemporary educational inequalities, especially as they're experienced by racial and ethnic minority and immigrant families. So a lot of my work has focused on how families from different backgrounds interact with schools, and more recently, this has turned um, turned toward understanding the longer-term impacts of early educational inequalities on young people's lives, um, hence this book on the transition to adulthood. Interesting. So is this also the kind of approach you and your co-authors took in this book in terms of like looking at inequality, educational issues? Yeah, so uh, my co-authors, Hendra Park and Grace Cow um, and I, we're all sociologists by training, and we all have this deep interest in, in this area of the sociology of education. So really understanding educational inequalities and especially um how they're experienced by by different subpopulations in the United States. Yeah, I found that part is very interesting. And that seems to distinguish your book from a lot of other books on similar topics. So I just want to get us started by, you know, unpacking the title of the book a little bit more. Because I, I think the term, the transition to adulthood, very interesting and also super broad. It's like, you know, there are many years um, in a teenager's life when that person, when they grow into a mature adult. So many things happen, could happen in these years. Um, it's a, another way to say 
uh, transition to adulthood, coming of age. And yeah. you also, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, I do think the transition to adulthood sounds a little technical and um, <laughs> probably coming of age is a good way of putting it in layman's terms. And I think if you said either of these, transition to adulthood or coming of age, people probably have an intuitive sense of what is meant by these terms, but it, they are actually quite ambiguous, even in the academic literature. So if you were to do like an academic literature search of transition to adulthood, you would, as you say, get like a, a huge number of studies across a vast range of topics and age ranges. So everything from like 18 year olds and their post-secondary experiences to like 30 year olds and, and like marital patterns, right? And I think this yeah, I mean, I'm like, I've never thought that you could study a 30 year old and it's still in the transition <laughs> period. Yeah, well, my joke is that when we started this book, I was still in the age range that we considered this transition to adulthood. And I aged out oh, of it as, okay. as we finished up the book. But um, I, I mean, I think this broad age range reflects the fact that a lot of major role transitions associated with adulthood, things like finishing school or getting married or having a kid, a lot of those things happen for people between the ages of say like 20 to 40, right? Or, or mid to late thirties. And in, in that sense, the transition to adulthood is a lot more encompassing than coming of age, which I think people tend to think of as happening in adolescence. So if you think of like really culturally specific celebrations like bar mitzvahs or quinceaneras to even, even like institutionalized markers like getting a driver's license or being able to vote or drink. Like a lot of times we think of that as a coming of age marker, but the transition right. to adulthood really as you say, kind of kind of gives this broader view of um, that that early adulthood period. Yeah, I mean, totally. I think um, what you said just now also broadened my understanding on this term because, like, my impression still stayed with those coming of age um, images about you know those this ritual passage, for example. Yeah, that got discussed a lot in previous literature as well. Um, but one thing you mentioned I found um, very interesting and very relevant is you said there is a typical narrative about the coming of age stories. And I don't know, I mean, I grew up, I came of age, uh, not in this country. So I'm not quite familiar with the typical narrative. So. I think it will help if you could just uh, say a little bit about what these typical narratives are and uh, how you um, approach this issue. You and your co-authors um, all approach this issue similarly or differently. Yeah, um, so I think one thing we pointed out in the book is, as you mentioned, this prevalence of a sort of mainstream view of coming of age. Um, and one thing we do in the book is we reference these three characters from you know, relatively recent movies that would fit into that coming of age genre, right? And even though all these three characters come from really different backgrounds, actually thematically, the movies are quite similar, right? There's the decision of going to college. That's like a major part mm -hmm. of each of these storylines. And there's always a, rom a romantic relationship involved in, in these storylines, right? Or independence from parents, like sort of breaking away from parents. And these things are really common in a lot of the mainstream media aimed at young people, right? If you pick up a, you know, a they call it YA now, like a young adult novel or a young adult um movie or you know tv show a lot of these themes like recur throughout and i think they do present a really strong normative ideal right so you know i regularly teach an undergraduate course on childhood and adolescence and my undergraduate students you know like lots of americans they generally agree there's no one way to become an adult but they still mostly have a similar ideal for themselves that involves you know one day finishing school and getting a good job and getting their own place and getting married and having a kid so even if they say you don't have to have those things to be an adult most people still want those things right and that sort of normative view of adulthood the 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 series in which these events happen and you know just how important these events are i think you just see it across a range of really mainstream media and cultural outlets for young people right so that's very interesting. And that's not like fixed because like, you know, for one thing, going to um, college is not something that stay there forever, right? Like if you go back to one century ago, even half a century ago, that's not, you know, something that everybody want, wanted to do or could do. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are these major changes. Um, and, you know, again, we, we touch on these in um in the book, but it is true, 
you know, it's appropriate that we're talking about this on an education podcast, because that is a central focus of the book is just how much education really shapes what young people are going through today. And a big reason is the vast majority of teenagers, you know, if you survey high schoolers, they they all aspire to college. It's, it's, it's almost universal, the aspiration to college, but we know actual college completion rates are much lower than, than the share of teenagers who aspire to it, right? And so education does become the central piece. Um, and even though it's actually, you know, not the majority of young people who end up finishing a four-year degree, again, if you look at the media on, um, you know, around young people, college figures in so much. There's so many movies about going to college and the co- and college life, et cetera. It's almost, it paints such a normative view that you have to go to college and you have to have this college experience, even though going to college and having a quote-unquote college experience is, is vastly different across different populations in the U.S., right? Yeah, I mean, indeed. And that leads me to my next question about the term diversity, because I think um, so there are so many diverse paths that uh, teenagers can take to become a, a mature adult. But then like what are some of the specific aspects you focused on in the book? Yeah, so really, um, you know, a big a central focus of the book is on racial and ethnic diversity and also um, related to that um, differences between uh, native born young people. So those born in the United States and um, immigrant young people. So those who migrated at a young enough age where they would have experienced the, you know, adolescence and the transition to adulthood in the U.S., but you know, either by having immigrant parents or being immigrants themselves, there there may be some fundamental differences in how they approach that transition to adulthood, right? So we do focus a lot on racial ethnic diversity, on comparisons between immigrant and native-born young people, but of course, gender figures into it as well. Um, right, I was going of, to ask. Yeah, yeah, the experiences of young men and women are are quite different on some milestones, especially around family formation, like marriage and um, having having children and becoming parents, and um. You know, we do have a chapter where we devote that we devote to other forms of diversity. So we look at ethnic diversity. So we're not just talking about race um, mm-hmm. and racial categories. We're also looking at within broader pan-ethnic categories like the Latinx population or the Asian American population, specific ethnic groups within those, because there's a lot of variation there too. And you know, when it comes to gender, of course, ge- um, evolving gender identities, um, sexual minority youth, that also plays a role in the transition to adulthood. Um, when we're talking about the immigrant population, of course, undocumented status matters too. So there's all, you know, you know diversity is a catch-all term, and there are many ways you can approach it. And I think when we're focusing on racial ethnic diversity and immigrant native comparisons and gender, we're also trying to look at how can we go a little bit deeper and look at other issues that are related to these broader um, stratifying forces. Well, that's very interesting. And I think, you know, to draw such a big picture of this image on such a broad topic really requires a lot of data, requires a lot of studies, uh, a lot of work. So I wonder if you could um, talk a little bit about your empirical data. I mean, I know sociologists are super thorough with that. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, it's... um... Uh, so this is a quantitative book, so it is largely, you know, we don't rely on interviews too much, although we do try to incorporate the voices of young people. But for this particular book, we rely on data from the American Community Survey, or the ACS for short, and that's an annual survey that's conducted by the U.S. Census Bureau. So it asks a lot more questions than that short form decennial survey form that a lot of us filled out recently in 2020. In a lot of ways, the ACS is ideal because it contains a lot of data that we use, that we have traditionally used to measure adulthood milestones. So things like, is someone still enrolled in school or not? Are they working full-time or not? Are they heading their own household or not? Are they married or not? Do they have a kid of their own at home or not, right? So a lot of this information is contained in the ACS. Um, and it's it's also a large sample, right? And if And we were able to combine five years worth of survey data. And so that means... We have a large enough sample that we are able to do a lot of unique things um, or, or things that are more limited in other data sets. So we can focus on particular subgroups like, you know, specific ethnic groups. For example, we can look at um, Chinese Americans and Filipino Americans and Mexican Americans and Puerto Ricans rather than just saying Latin X populations or Asian Americans. Right. So 
I mean, that sounds like a technical question, but you know, I'm a mastologist, so I kind of naturally want to ask this type of question is like how confident you are about the representativeness of your sample, right? I mean, it, it's related with, you know, larger things like you, the generalizing statements you make in the book about American use today in general. So if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I would say for any research that works with secondary data, meaning data we didn't collect ourselves, um, there's always trade-offs. So you're not always going to have the exact measure you want. Sometimes a survey question isn't worded the way you want it to be worded, or maybe it doesn't collect a relevant piece of data you would really like. And for things like government data, there are topics that are really sensitive, things like, um, you know, questions around citizenship status, for example, or sexual orientation, right? And so these questions would not appear, do not appear on the ACS at all. But you could see why they would be relevant to understanding diversity in that transition to adulthood experience, right? Um, and I'll give you an example. So the way data on parenthood is collected in the ACS is pretty limited. So there's a question that's only asked of women that is, did you give birth to a child in the past year? And there's another question that asks, do you have a kid of your, a child of your own living in your house with you? But either way, you can see almost immediately, like this is not a comprehensive measure of parenthood, right? Um, there are lots of ways right. to be a parent besides giving birth, especially giving birth in the last year. Um, and having a child of your own in your household is not necessarily indicative of whether or not you're actually a parent, right? Because the child may not live with you, or there may be other family situations in which that doesn't apply. And yet you, you are by societal definitions a parent, right? And so we discuss these kinds of trade-offs in the book. Um, we discuss these data limitations and do our best to be transparent about um, the potential impact our choices of measures have for understanding those outcomes we focus on. So, you know, there's a chapter where we focus a lot on marriage and parenthood, but in that chapter, really what we're focusing on is motherhood, because a lot of the measures are not precise measures of have you actually, you know, had a child, right? Are you responsible for a child? And because we know the way um, single parent households work in the U.S., they're largely single mother households, right? So having a child of your own in the house, if you are not currently married, it's almost it's it's almost universally like a single mother story, right? There's just very few single father households. And so, you know, we acknowledge that limitation. We say this is how it would impact our interpretation of some of those outcomes we look at, right? Like when we talk about parenthood, really what we're talking about is motherhood in this case because of this data limitation, but, you know, like I mentioned, the on the other hand, the ACS is a large sample. We combine five years worth of data. Um, I think, you know, the U.S. Census Bureau um, and, and the organization that we got this data from, which is uh, hosted by the University of Minnesota, it's called IPUMS, you know, they, they really do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of collecting data and harmonizing that data. And and I think the quality of that kind of data is is better, is better better than what um, any individual research can do, right? This is something that a lot of research is, this is a research issue that we're grappling with, which is to get people to respond to surveys these days is exceedingly difficult. Like response rates are just- I know, yeah, down the response the board, rate right? is- uh, yeah. yeah, and and to have, you know, government and public entities behind this who do that heavy lifting, I mean, it, it truly is a public service, right? That this data is publicly available and, and they really set the standard for like rigorous- data collection and um, statistical sampling. And I think, you know, in, in the absence of, <laughs> of of a sort of universal census, um, this is sort of the gold standard for, for population level data. Yeah, very interesting. And it's even more interesting to hear the examples you gave about, you know, how to think about or uh, like think through those findings, knowing that, you know, there is no perfect answers or no perfect data for the type of questions you are asking, but this is the best available uh, resources that we can go for. Um, and, it's, and it's important that, you know, we use those data to address important questions. So that really, uh, related with is related with my next question about the uh, five milestones. I found the book is very well structured, very easy to follow. Part of the reason is because of how you at the very beginning laid out these, you know, five milestones of transitioning to adulthood. And you look at those uh, milestones uh, one by one 
And I, I'm trying to recall all of them. <laughs> I think one is going to college, right? And leaving your parents' household and then um, marriage, parenthood. Um, there's another and full-time one. work would be. Full-time, full yeah. Yeah, sort of like, you know, uh, participating in the labor market. Yeah. Uh, well, very, very interesting. I mean, it's it's going to be very hard to go through all the findings that you um, discussed in the book about all the five milestones. But maybe you can um, say a little bit more about why you true you chose these five uh, five milestones instead of other things, other markers, and then we could maybe just pick some of the highlights from the findings to dive yeah, in. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I'm waiting, I'm waiting one day for one of my undergraduate students to say something like, oh, your book was so easy to easy to read and easy to follow. Hasn't happened yet, but I'll wait for it. Um, and so yeah, in terms of the five milestones that we cover and then sort of put together into what we call these sort of profiles of adulthood. So um, you know, traditionally these follow a sequence. It's not to say that this sequence all you know always happens in this order, um, but they are quite tightly linked in a lot of cases, right? So usually it's something like the completion of education. And in this case, we really focus on the completion of a bachelor's degree or not. But of course, young people can finish their education at all, all different levels, right? But we really focus on the idea that um having a, a college degree is really this stratifying feature, right? So completing education and then moving on to full-time work. And then once you've sort of established that, um, moving out of the parental home and establishing an independent household of your own. And then from there, marriage and then parenthood, right? So you can see there's a sort of traditionally a natural sequence to this, right? They sort of follow one another. And in the past, it is true that they would follow the sequence and it would happen um, more or less quite quickly in like a short period of time. And I wonder if that would be like what you suggested at the beginning about this typical narrative. So like when I thought about, you know, I don't know. I mean, sorry yeah. to interrupt yeah. no, you. No, no, yeah. no. I think that's a good question. So I would say um, probably, you know, coming of age narratives don't focus um, so overtly on that sequence, but there's, there is a natural rhythm to it, right? If you're watching a movie about high schoolers, for example, you know, like college is going to figure into this movie at some point, right? And then, of course, romantic relationships, but not necessarily marriage, right? But if you're watching a movie about like 20 or 30 something year olds, of course, marriage, you know, like a serious romantic relationship, marriage and parenthood is going to figure a lot more into this, right? So there's a sort of natural progression to it. And, you know, young people will say there's, again, just like they say, there's no one way to be an adult. They'll say there's no one order you have to do any of these things in. And it is true for young people today, um, the order you know, maybe is a little more, um, I don't want to say the word messy, but they're not quite so tightly linked as they were in the past. But still, I think there is, um, there's a normative ideal of these things happening in sequence, right? Probably most, m most young people, and probably their parents too, would not want them to have a kid before they get married or to not, not get married until they have like a full-time job or something like that, right? So people do set um, sort of goals for themselves that are related to these markers that they want to meet before they can move on to another marker. Um, if you talk to young people, for example, a lot of them delay marriage because they're, even if they're in a committed relationship, because they'll say, oh, we're, we're saving up, right? We want to make sure we're in a financially stable place before we get married. And so you can see why having a full-time job is then related to whether or not you're going to, you know, you're currently married or something like that. But um, to answer your question about like why these five milestones, um, these are what what a lot of the literature on the transition to adulthood has traditionally focused on. So a lot of times we call these the traditional markers of adulthood or traditional milestones in adulthood. And that was because this was, this is a lot about role transitions, right? So if becoming an adult means you take on different roles than you did as a child or as an adolescent, then these are real role changes, right? You go from being a student to being a worker. You go from being someone's child to being someone's spouse to being a parent yourself, right? These are real major role transitions that were traditionally associated with our idea of becoming an adult. And so they really form a lot of the literature around that transition to adulthood, right? These traditional markers. And actually, if you ask most Americans, they will still say these five milestones are um, are quite important to their idea of being an adult, right? The, the share that will say it's very important will vary over time and will vary by age. But for the most part, Americans agree that at least some aspects of these milestones are really central to their idea of what it means to be an adult. And so we wanted to do justice to that. And also, 
you know, because we rely on a lot of synthesis of literature in here, um, because so much of the literature is driven by these particular markers, you know, it just point, it just gives us a point of comparison. If we want to talk about trends over time, it's really hard to talk about trends over time in young people's attitudes toward adulthood, because we haven't always asked young people, you know, how do you think about adulthood or how do you feel about adulthood, right? That's really a, a, a very, a very contemporary thing. It's very, it's, it's a quite recent thing. So if we want to talk about trends, really what we're talking about is trends in these um sort of real uh me measurable outcomes, right? Like, are you done with school? Are you married or not? Do you have a kid or not? Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And then um, as we think about the findings revolving around these five milestones, what are some of the things that you want to highlight? I mean, that might be just all, all these takeaway points from our <laughs> podcast. So. Yeah, I would say, um, you know, there are probably you know, without focusing on the details of, of each individual milestone, I would say probably some of the major takeaways would be, uh, one, again, appropriate for this podcast is that education, specifically having a bachelor's degree, is a really, really clear dividing line in young people's experiences. It's, it's so strongly associated with one's chances of working full time, establishing residential independence, marrying, um, and even starting a family. And, and this educational divide in terms of having a, a bachelor's degree or not, it carries across racial ethnic groups. It carries across it carries across gender. And by that, I mean, young people with a bachelor's degree, regardless of their gender or their racial background or whether they're from an immigrant family or not, they have more similar experiences in that transition to adulthood than they would with a peer from a similar demographic background who does not have a college degree. And this is something we talk a lot uh, uh, quite a bit in the book that the educational requirements to land a good stable job, you know, with benefits have gone up and income inequality is growing in the United States. And so even though a college degree is not a guaranteed ticket into a middle-class lifestyle, it is a really strong predictor. And so, you know, education, again, having a bachelor's degree or not for us, that, that was a really clear dividing line in young people's experiences. And, and that really carries into our analysis of these other milestones, like leaving the parental home, getting married and, and having a kid, right? Um, but another key takeaway is that um, we don't mean to say race and ethnicity and nativity and gender don't matter. So another major takeaway would be that racial inequalities, gender inequalities, differences in experiences between immigrant and native born young people, they don't just disappear because you have a college degree. They're just not as stark. They're not as visible or strongly defined as they are among young people with a college degree. So in other words, education is a major equalizer, but it doesn't erase all those inequalities. And we should still be attuned to those areas in which young people with similar levels of education, whether it's a college degree or not, nevertheless, still have very different experiences. It's not all about education, right? Education plays a major role, but it it doesn't equalize other longstanding inequalities in young people's lives. And I would say third, um, a, a sort of broader conversation we're trying to have with readers of this book, whether they're the general public um, or reluctant students or other researchers, is that we do need to come up with new conceptual and empirical tools to understand the transition to adulthood today. So for example, you know, and I mentioned this earlier, conceptually, we have a very biological view of parenthood and it's reflected in the way we collect data on parenthood. So you know, for example, women giving birth, right? But there, again, there are many ways of becoming a parent through marriage, adoption, or surrogacy. And I would say in a lot of ways related to the actual ex experiences of young people, the research hasn't quite caught up. And so in the book, we discuss how important it is to incorporate a diversity of young people's experiences, what they experience, and how they think of those experiences, because that can get, actually give us a lot more of a thoughtful and holistic approach to understanding the transition to adulthood and specifically what types of policies can support young people as they are making this transition into adulthood. I almost feel like, you know, young people's life has been diverse, so diverse that our research can't catch up to some degree. It's like our maybe our measures or um, our approaches, methods, haven't been updated enough to really um, stay abreast with our contemporary life to some degree. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there, there is a sense research is always, is always kind of um, trailing people's lived experiences, right? It kind of takes researchers a while, I think, to sort of catch on to something that, that is happening in people's lived, you know, everyday lives. 
Um, I would say in terms of like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think people are unaware that the United States is a lot more racially and ethnically diverse today than it was, you know, just after World War II, for example, right? But I think in a lot of ways, our understanding of, um, of then how this uh, much more diverse youth population ends up experiencing the transition to adulthood, I think a lot of our literature on the transition to adulthood does not really... It's not that they're ignoring it, but by not focusing on it, you actually, I think, do miss an important part of the narrative about the transition to adulthood, which is that there is no universal transition to adulthood. Rather, we, we're talking about transitions to adulthood, right? People, depending on their background, young people, depending on their background, really experience uh, the, that period of young adulthood in, in vastly different ways on, on a lot of measures. Right. So I wonder if we could, you know, dive deeper into the conversation here, because I was thinking about, you know, for example, you'll find out this um, significance of going to college in shaping young people's life, like lived experience, for example. So, so what is the, um, I was just wondering, uh, I mean, as I was reading the book, I'm also thinking about, because education itself is very much like, um, I don't know, we have a lot, like within the uh, field of education, of course, we have a lot of discussions about, is it just uh, um, reproducing the inequality or is, is can it really be the equalizer? you know, to provide uh, ample opportunities for youth and children of different backgrounds, for example. So that makes me wonder, like, you know, what do you see as the uh, discrepancies here in terms of people, young people from different racial backgrounds, you know, attending college, for example? Yeah, so one important thing to keep in mind for this book is that we're capturing the experiences of young people at a moment in time, right, in their mid-20s yeah. to early 30s. And where they are at that moment that we're looking at them in that book is a buildup of all their past experiences, including, as you mentioned, those educational inequalities that build up over many, many years. Right. So, for example, as we talked about before, a lot of young people aspire to complete college, even though nationally, you know, it's something like fewer than half of students who start out a four-year college finish a four-year degree within that four years, right? And even uh, less than two-thirds do it in six years. So, you know, young people from advantaged backgrounds are much more likely to have gone to K-12 schools that prepare them for college, and they're more familiar with those social and cultural norms of college, and they're more likely to complete college, right, and less likely to incur debt as they're doing it. And so, a college education is, of course, hugely consequential for young people, but they don't enter post-secondary education with equal resources. And we talk about this um, particularly in that chapter on education and the labor market, but, you know, that's a large and difficult subject to tackle, right? On the one hand, as you point out, it is true, education is an equalizer in the sense that if you can make it through, and, the you know, the U.S. education system is quite open, right? There, there's, it's not a, it's not a one shot you have at it, right? There are many chances again to enter higher education, right. even if you're from the entry right? point. Yeah, right, right. But it does, it does get harder, the less you sort of follow that normative pipeline from, you know, you graduate high school, you enter a four year school, and you finish in four years, right? The more you sort of deviate from the way these institutions set up that pipeline, the harder it is actually to end up with that college degree. But it is possible, and many, many young people do it, right? Um, and not just young people. Increasingly, you see a lot of older older students returning to college, right? And so, you know, there's e even beyond the individual impact on the young person getting the degree, um, there's a lot of societal benefits to just having some college education, right? Um, and there's a lot of literature that supports this, that, you know, they... Um, there's impacts on the on children who have college educated parents or parents with some college experience, right? There's health health impacts, um, health benefits to having some college education. There's just a whole host of what we might consider societal benefits to having people at least experience college. But of course, on the individual level, there are lots of inequalities in who can actually complete, right? And this this is um, I, I would not say it's the, necessarily the fault of the educational system, right? It's, it's it's all these interconnected social institutions that make it difficult for the education system to compensate for existing societal inequality, 
if there's continued residential segregation in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of social class in the United States, which there is, and it's, um, you know, you see it all, all across the United States, that impacts the types of schools, uh, the uh, resources that schools have, right? So it's not the fault of schools that they're given fewer resources. They're sort of making do with what they can. Um, and to place it all, I think, on an overburdened public education system is asking a lot. And when it does succeed, you can see great outcomes for young people from disadvantaged backgrounds who make it through, right? Their, um, their lives on a lot of measures are vastly improved by gaining a college degree. But, you know, we're, we haven't set it up so that all young people from disadvantaged backgrounds have equal opportunities compared to their more advantaged counterparts. So it is a tricky situation. It's not, you know, this is why education reform is, is there's so many debates around in the United States. Um, and I would say, you know, it was sort of beyond the scope of this book to focus primarily on education. But I think what we do conclude at the end is that a lot of debates um, about the well-being of young people, like the policies we enact, they have, they're really consequential for not just young people at the time that they're in these schools, but they sort of reverberate throughout young people's lives as they continue into adulthood, right? There's long, long, long lasting impacts of early educational inequalities on where young people end up as they move into adulthood. That's so true. I mean, uh, as I read the book, I was thinking about, you know, very some very important and heatedly debated uh, topics in our society. So, you know, we talk about education, and of course, nowadays, education is such a battleground, right? And then we think about, I was thinking about, you know, a few weeks ago, um, uh, we were all discussing about student loan forgiveness, for example, and um, a lot of the uh, news reports really covered, you know, what that means with these um, students' loan, what that means to the life of students who graduated with, you know, a heavy student loan, how that might delay um, their, um, you know, their decision to purchase their own house, uh, or how that might delay or make some other um, influence in their later life. So I was thinking about, you know, if we think about um, some of the policy implications of the book, or maybe how the book, the findings of the book might inform some of the ongoing public discussions that are particularly relevant to, to young people's life. Uh, what are some of the examples that you can give? Yeah, so um, this does come out throughout the book. So, you know, broadly, I would say the issues that young people are confronting today are not are, are not limited to young people, right? If we're concerned yeah, about that's income the thing. inequality, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So, if you think about, um, you know, young people having a tough time of it in education and in the labor market, well. You know, that's something that's impacting all middle class families in the United States, right? If we're talking about a shrinking middle class or increasing pressure on the middle class or a disappearing middle class, of course, that impacts children who come from those families, right? And policies that are designed to broaden the middle class, um, broaden social mobility, of course, they're going to trickle down and impact young people as they transition to adulthood, right? So it's not like we're saying you have to have... You know, all policies must be directed toward young people. No, any policy that's about reducing societal inequalities is going to ultimately impact young people, right? And make things easier for them, make it easier for them to transition to adulthood. But I think there are ways um, we can point, you know, that's sort of, <laughs> maybe that's sort of like an amorphous answer, right? Which is to say policies, of course, will impact young people. But I think we point out some real concrete ways in which policies can almost immediately and directly shape the path that a young person is on. And we talk about this in the context of like undocumented young people and um, LGBTQ plus young people or sexual minority young people, right? So we use the example of DACA. Right, the, the yeah, DACA, let's talk about that, yeah. Yeah, so DACA, you know, has had a troubled history, right? First of all, it's not a permanent solution. Second of all, depending on the administration in charge or sort of how the political winds are going, DACA opens up or it closes. And that, that's an arbitrary political decision. Right. But it's something that that arbitrary window of when, you know, what, a date in which you apply by this date, you're in. If you don't apply, then tough luck, you're out. Right. 
that that's something that's set by by government rules, and yet that can immediately impact young people, uh, undocumented young people, right? So imagine, um, you know, October October tenth, closing date for DACA. Let's just imagine, right? Anybody who got in October 9th, okay, you're safe, right? But if you got in October 11th, all else being equal, suddenly, you know, your path to college is so much harder, right? E even your ability to enter college and then your ability to finance college through like financial aid and things like that suddenly completely shifted. And if, if it's subjected to like sort of the, um, you know, whoever's in charge at that moment, the, the political party that's in charge at the moment or, uh, you know, how the American public is feeling about DACA, it's it's not... It, you know, I, I don't I I think we should understand why an undocumented young person then looking at this and saying, like, what is, you know, I don't even know if I can get DACA or, if, you know, maybe maybe one day I will, maybe one day I won't. That uncertainty, I don't think it's unusual then to see how um, some of them can end up going off a track they were expecting, right, like away from college and even away from pursuing romantic relationships. So we talk about some research in the book that says a lot of undocumented young people, if they don't have that protected status, they're actually really reluctant to even engage in romantic relationships because they're in a very vulnerable position, right? And it's kind of risky for them to reveal it and to engage in sort of things that we take for granted, like being able to drive on a date, right? Or um, go to particular places and not worry about having to, sh to document your status, right? And then in terms of LGBTQ populations, you know, it, it was not that long ago that we, same-sex marriage was not even allowed in the United States, right? And of course there are worries that um, this may not, be protected at the federal level, right? They're, they're um, you know, the way, again, in this sort of politically divided moment, there are a lot of things that, um, you know, same-sex unions- Still, still more uncertain than- Right, yourself. exactly, yeah. more uncertainties, right? And if a state can legally prevent same-sex unions or prevent same-sex couples from adopting children, they're actually limiting the opportunity of young people to pursue- a lot of those family formation milestones we associate with adulthood, right? If you legally do not allow same-sex marriage and you're talking to a young person who has a same-sex partner, then you're legally saying you cannot be in a marriage. And if we consider marriage an essential part of being an adult, then you're, you've, you've blocked that opportunity for them, right? Um, and if they want to have children, of course, there are many ways to have children, but um, for sexual minority youth or those in same-sex relationships, there's additional hurdles, right? And those hurdles are not entirely in their control. It, it depends on, you know, what's, what state and federal laws are in place that help them or hinder them in pursuing that. Yeah. I mean, my personal opinion would be, it's so helpful to have these examples. And then my personal thinking would be like, it's okay if they don't want to pursue those milestones, like marriage, for example, but they should enjoy the same opportunities and the same rights as their peers um, enjoying. Otherwise, right. it's like the, the level of uncertainty, the level of precarity just weigh so heavy, so much for a teenager, adolescent. Right, especially yeah. those that are already, you know, part of a, a vulnerable subgroup, right? Mm -hmm. um, where, e you know, even beyond what sort of um, rights or privileges society decides to grant them, um, you know, they're nav navigating all sorts of social and cultural norms um, that are sometimes difficult. And so, you know, it, it, it just, just, just like anything, um, when there are inequalities in society, they impact vulnerable populations so much more than they do people who come from more advantaged backgrounds, right? Or who are not members of a sort of vulnerable group. Yeah, in this way, we perhaps could see inequality better in a way that we, we really see them visibly, like how that just got folded into a person's life. Oh. Right. Yeah. And again, when it comes to policies like DACA or, you know, same sex marriage, these are these are beyond the control of any individual young person. Right. This is something that as collectively as a society, we, you, you know, we decide what rights and privileges do we grant people. And it turns out we're not so equitable sometimes when it comes to recognizing those. Right. Yeah, indeed. And I do think you know, the book has provided some important scientific evidence 
that we could use to engage in such public conversation. You know, like there are so many conversations going on every day on the public sphere. And then are there any evidence? Are there any, you know, rigorously research-backed findings to support any of the statements made in these discussions. So I think in that way, um, the book really needs to go to public. We really <laughs> should, uh, yeah, we should, we really should encourage, you know, not only academics, but also um, advocacy groups, um, maybe policymakers, general citizens, like, you know, citizens are read books and understand how policies may influence young people's life in very visible ways. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and that's why we're here. Like, we really <laughs> want to. <laughs> that's right. This is part of public outreach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think I want to um, move to our next question because I feel like we do have a, um, a more in-depth uh, look into the book itself. But then continue this conversation. I just wonder to see um, any change, for example, uh, of these patterns since the start of the pandemic, because the pandemic has really changed a lot of the things around yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. So we we started this book pre-pandemic and then finished it as um, COVID, you know, the pandemic was unfolding. And so we did include some material on how the pandemic has impacted young people's lives. You know, the, the more immediate ones, like it, it, it totally disrupted education. Right? Of course, um, yes. I, I mean, that's that's beyond debate, right? And now we're seeing... Uh, the data is catching up, right? So they just released um, um, some the NAEP data, yeah, yeah. Like the nation's <laughs> report card, right? And it was, yeah. you know, it, it was quite bad, um, but I don't think unexpected, right? Like we knew a lot of learning was lost in that period. And it's not just, um, you know, kids in K-12, it was a lot of college students too, right? Um, and obviously there were immediate impacts, like it disrupted young people's living arrangements. So if they couldn't be on college campus, for those in college, if they couldn't be on college campuses anymore, they moved back home, right? So you saw this influx of young people now returning to the parental home, right? But we also um, try to focus on how the pandemic um, in many ways, just exacerbated existing inequalities, right? So, you know, you know, for example, you see this also in how um, health inequalities were discussed in relation to the pandemic, right? So early on in the pandemic, we saw um, death rates were higher among some minority groups. And, you know, that obviously reflected lack of access to um, good health care, right? Um, you know, all sorts of existing racial inequalities in the United States health system. So it's not unlike what we see on the impacts of, on young people, right? Um, for example, young people's employment highly impacted by the pandemic. A lot of young people work in industries, service industries that were just completely shut off, you know, when we went into lockdown, right? And so young people saw greater unemployment rates, higher unemployment rates than older adults. But racial and ethnic minority young people experienced unemployment at greater rates than white young people, right? So those racial and ethnic inequalities persisted and were um, sort of highlighted, I think, during the pandemic. So COVID has touched everyone's lives, but it has the potential to really impact young people's lives because they're just starting out in education and in their careers. And like many emergencies and disasters, something like that pandemic takes a larger toll on the more vulnerable members of society, right? If you're already at a disadvantage when a disaster or something like a pandemic happens, it, it's just going to harm you a lot more, right? It's just going to touch your life um, more deeply than it does someone from a more advantaged position in society. You know, that makes me wonder, like, do we even have the kind of data that we have, we had before the pandemic to really, you know, describe what's, what happened to them? Yeah, I do think this was an area where, um, um, you know, the government did try to do some innovative data collection, right? Um, I, I wouldn't say they all came off perfectly. And actually, we don't, I think it's too soon for us to say, you know, how much has this impacted the quality of data collected? For example, the 2020 census, you know, happens once every decade, it's a major undertaking, but that was clearly disrupted by the pandemic, right? And we don't quite yet know. And it's, and it's such a source of information. You know, it, it impacts everything from how voting districts are drawn, exactly, how resources yeah. are allocated, right? And we don't really know the long term 
consequences of how the pandemic disrupted the quality of data we collected, right? And I think, um, you know, I saw some interesting ways the government tried to collect data. You know, they were doing these household pulse surveys, right? So there were sort of these rapid surveys that they were doing at regular intervals. And they were asking um, families, households with children, you know, what the educational experiences have been like, right? How often does the kid have access to internet? How how much time are they spending on school? And so I think there are... um, there are ways we can start digging into that data and trying to tease out um, how much did the pandemic, you know, it was obviously disruptive for everyone, but was it was it especially disruptive for um, particular subgroups, you know, less advantaged families, lower socioeconomic status, um, racial or ethnic minority families, immigrant families, right? Um, I think this is about the point where that data is coming in. Um, and we're, we're starting to piece that story together, right? Research always takes a while to, to catch up, but I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more studies that look at look at it from this angle of um, inequalities, right? Of course, everybody's life's, life was disrupted, but there, the consequences I think were much more severe for some groups versus others. Yeah, indeed. I mean, we look forward to seeing more findings and more research in this area, um, but, I'm also thinking about, you know, the book itself has provided already such a rich discussion on these issues. And you might have been using this book since it's out just very recently, right? And you might have been using this book, engaging your students who are in this transitioning period and who are also experiencing COVID, you know. Uh, so, so I wonder like what your students say to you about um, say reading your book and how they feel, whether they feel relate to the book, connected to the book, things like that. Yeah, so unfortunately the book came out when I had already assigned books for my undergraduate class on childhood and adolescence. And so I thought, well, I'm gonna force them you know, to to read this book that just came out or, you know, completely disrupt my syllabus just so they have to read something, you know, but obviously I will use a lot of the the data figures in, um, you know, we're in this sure. module right now yeah. on the transition yeah. to adulthood. So I'll use a lot of those data figures to highlight to them, you know, why education matters and, you know, how they can think sort of beyond their personal experiences into sort of, um, you know, the broader social context in which they are experiencing their lives, right? And you know, of course, students are all super interested in transition to adulthood. It feels really relatable to them. It feels very personal to them. They have a lot of opinions about what it's like to be a young person today. I would say one thing I'm I'm actually very surprised by is how optimistic and generous they are in their characterization of transition to adulthood today. So whereas many sociologists like myself, I would say um, my co-authors, um, Hyunjin Park and Grace Cow too, you know, we, we describe it as it's, it's, diff- it's a lot more difficult for young people today in a lot of ways, right? The transition to adulthood is prolonged. Young people have to spend a lot more time in education and training um, to get to a comfortable, you know, to be competitive in the labor market. But a lot of my students feel like they have a lot more opportunities compared to their parents' generation. Yeah, this may be a function. I I, I think it might be a function of the student population. I teach at the University of North Texas. So there's a lot of first generation college students there. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So that might be it. But I, I also think it's this broader tendency for young people today to take a very individualized view of the transition to adulthood. So they, they view it very personally, right? Um, and on the one hand, I think this sort of represents their agency in defining adulthood on their own terms. But I think it also obscures the way major social changes and institutions really shape and, and sometimes limit their opportunities, right? So I hope that in you know, reading a book like this can open students' eyes to that broader social context, especially if it helps them understand that whatever challenges they're facing are not about, not necessarily about personal and individual failings, right? And that there are many, many young people in their situation who are struggling to attain that normative adulthood that is still the ideal for a lot of them, right? So rather than them thinking, well, there's something wrong with me, or they're, you know, I'm not mature enough, or I'm not independent enough. It's really thinking through, well, what is the broader social context that makes it more difficult for you to be financially independent or to feel like you are mature enough to strike out on your own, right? So 
you know, hopefully it's a way of getting young people, again, it feels very personal to them, right? Most undergraduates um, are are at about this age and they, you know, everybody they hang out with is about this age. And it's a sort of joke I have, which is, you know, unlike some other sociology classes where you might say that's interesting, but it's not applicable to me, everybody in their life has been at one point a child and has been an adolescent, right? So everybody has this personal experience they can draw on and it gives them a lot of rich insight. But again, I'm trying to push them to move away from this really individualistic, personalized view and saying, oh, it's all about my personal circumstances saying, no, 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 no. Let's think about, you know, at a broader level, what is the social context that is shaping the institutions you're moving through and the opportunities that are available to you, right? This is so interesting. This is almost make me uh, want to sit in your classroom. And, uh, <laughs> you're, you welcome, know, just, uh, <laughs> you're welcome to come. Yeah, and talk about your transition to adulthood as well. <laughs> I know, like engage in this conversation because I feel like obviously there, I don't know, like if your students are all coming from Texas or from the United States and Obviously, there could be more like comparative even perspective on this issue, right? Because like this is so temporal, uh, specific and yeah. spatial specific yeah. issue. And like my, yeah, I'm going to talk about my experience. Like, you know, like my coming of age experience is very different from um, I think how you described here, maybe. Yeah. 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 But uh, we're not going to go that into that direction <laughs> yeah so it's yeah it's it's wonderful like to uh, hear more thoughts behind what is presented in this book like all the thinking process behind it and how you carefully thought through you know the uh, data and the limitations but also uh, the implications etc i think that part um it's particularly meaningful as we engage in conversations as opposed to, you know, just to go read a book. Um, uh, so my next question will be like, you know, since we have talked so much about the book itself, what you're working on right now. Yeah, so the nice thing about working on this book and, you know, honestly, on any research project is that it always generates new research questions, right? Exactly, so, yeah. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> and so with Hyunjun Park, one of one of my co-authors on this book, we, we're starting a new project that's specifically about Asian American young adults and how they experience the school to work transition. So when we were writing this book, we found a lot of literature on Asian Americans and educational attainment. Um, and to some extent, their labor market experience, but not really much that focuses on that transition period as young adults complete education and begin to work. And so we're really focused on the school to work linkage. And we found especially very little literature that focuses on Asian American young people without college degrees. And some of our early findings um, is showing that this population is, is very marginalized in the labor market. And so that, that's one, you know, one thing that kind of directly stems from this book. And with my colleague at um, the University of North Texas, Ronald Kwan, we're also looking at young people's attitudes toward traditional adulthood milestones and what other criteria they find important to being an adult. So even though some traditional milestones like marriage and parenthood might be delayed or young people might say that's less essential to being an adult, we also see that young people's attitudes for these are kind of sticky, meaning they, may, they retain a lot of importance, right? So even though we're talking about um, changes in how these milestones are met or how young people feel about them, it is true that a lot of these milestones are um, are still quite important to young people, right? Um, so we're taking a look at that. And then more broadly, I'm um, working on a study that examines the college experiences of immigrant origin students. So I would say, you know, probably not unfamiliar to listeners of this podcast, we know a lot about immigrant origin students' K-12 experiences and we know some about their college outcomes, but I would say we don't know a lot about their actual experiences in college. So how they navigate that really complicated, the really complicated academic, social and cultural norms of American higher education, right? So we sort of go from K-12 to, do they have a college degree or not? And then the actual higher education experience is kind of this black box where we're like, I don't know, something happens in there with immigrant origin students that produces these outcomes. But we haven't really, I think, delved more deeply into how they experience this. And I think that's an area that deserves more attention. Well, I got a sense that you didn't even take a break after writing this book. <laughs> it never ends. <laughs> it never yeah. ends. <laughs> you already have three projects lined up there. Yeah, but I think, you know, all, all related to this idea of um, 
you know, contemporary educational inequalities, right? And this focus on um, diversity, race, racial, ethnic diversity, um, immigrant experiences. Are, are there any of these three projects a book project? I'm asking because yeah. like, I wonder when we can have you back. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna reserve a spot for the Asian American one because Hyunjun and I are hoping that that one becomes a book. So when, you know, I don't, I can't guarantee when it'll come out, but I, I'll reserve a spot on your podcast in advance if that's okay. <laughs> Wonderful, let us okay. know. And we yeah. will definitely, I mean, I definitely let's will. say that I do have, um, you know, authors returned to this podcast talking about the, um, not necessarily the second book in their career, but you know the book, the second book that we talked about, we interviewed them um, recently. They just published, so it's amazing, you know, to see how people have been very prolific, but also to see how people's um, thinking progressed in in um, maybe a period of time like two years or so. So we love uh, return yeah. return uh, returning guests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you'll see a lot of the same themes emerge, but hopefully, you know, with a newer topic or a sort of newer spin, right, or a different perspective, but a lot of the same themes, I'm sure. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, all right. And we have been taking so much time from you, uh, Phoebe. It's really wonderful to talk with you on this wonderful book. And thank you so much for um, joining us today. Thank you. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed it. We look forward to seeing you again very yep. soon. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye.